You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, the huge rise in economic inactivity after the pandemic is provoking concern. But should it? Second, as the government sues scandal-ridden PPE MedPro for failing to meet a contract during the pandemic, we'll have a look at how government managed to waste so much money so quickly. And finally, the Bank of Japan has just startled financial markets across the world with a seemingly tiny tweak to how it tries to manage interest rates. I'll try and sort out what this means for the rest of us. First story this week is having a look at a report from the House of Laws Economic Affairs Committee, this fairly eminent backbench committee of peers with uh, economic expertise, looking at the um, pressing question, they think, of economic inactivity. Now, economic inactivity is not like unemployment. Unemployment is, if I don't have a job but I want a job, I'm going to register as unemployed. Economic inactivity is when I don't have a job and I don't want a job. I'm just simply not going to bother uh, looking for one. I'm not interested in any of these things. And What's happened since the pandemic is a big increase in Britain, bigger than lots of other countries, in economic inactivity. Obviously, during the pandemic itself, you can understand that lots of people aren't going to be going out to work because there's lockdowns. What seems to have happened after the pandemic, and now we're in the first few years after it, um, that that increase in economic inactivity, particularly for older workers, has stayed in place. There's just lots and lots of people who, who don't want to go to work. So the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee and lots of other sort of Uh, respectable mainstream voices have been saying what a terrible thing this is and we need to understand why this is happening and how we must get everyone back into work and this is how the economy is now going to run. Um, If you take the total numbers involved, the the increase is pretty dramatic. There's 565,000 more uh, people now economically inactive than there were in late 2019. And if you take that as a total share of the workforce, it's about one in five people are now economically inactive. So it's a big increase uh, and it's a significant number of people, but is it quite the economic problem that it gets made out to be? So there are a few reasons why this might be happening, and the Lord's report goes into them. The most obvious one, and this is the very sort of negative, depressing part of the story, is that actually there's just been a big increase in people with uh, long-term sickness. Now, the estimates for long COVID, and what exactly long COVID is even, is quite hard to pin down. But our best kind of guess, or at least the government's best kind of guess, is there's something over 2 million people reporting these sorts of symptoms. Mixed up in that is just a general increase in the amount of long-term sickness sickness that people are reporting. And this is a part of why people are not reporting for work. They're just not well enough to do this. This is a obviously a bad social cost and a bad personal tragedy for the people involved. But the way the Lords talks about it and the way you see some of the reporting is, that, oh, well, this is just a, a sort of terrible economic cost for the rest of us. It's completely the wrong way around to think about this. If you have lots of people who are sick, what you need to think about first is how you're going to care for them. Not, isn't it going to damage the economy somewhere down the line? Doesn't this mean growth will be Uh, hurt or, or some sort of similar formulation like this. It's really not the right way to think about it. 
And that's only part of the story here. The other bit of economic inactivity is, very strikingly, a large number of over-50s in particular have simply taken the opportunity of the pandemic uh, to move out of work and say they're not going back. So it's people early retiring, it's people just not wanting to work anymore, it's people saying that, you know, actually for a lot of these people, they've spent all their lives working, they've actually saved up a bit of money, they don't really want to go back into work anytime soon. So the House of Lords picks out of this and says, look, this is actually a bit of a problem for everybody. This is kind of bad that all these people are are dropping out, that we need to find some ways to entice them back into the labour market. Although what they make clear and the people they talk to make clear is that a large number of these people just don't really want to work. And they're not going to be much persuaded by any amount of inducements, whether carrots or sticks, to try and force them to. So they're all choosing not to work anymore. And the House of Lords says this is terrible. And the reporting of the House of Lords report says, well, this is just very bad. This means that we've got labour shortages. We've got uh, problems in the wider economy where we don't have people in the right place at the right time. And oh dear, oh dear, perhaps it means even, God help us, all wages might have to rise. And of course, that's exactly why this just isn't a problem. Or rather, if it is a problem, it's not a problem in the way the House of Lords is framing this. It's actually... If we have lots of people not going into work because they don't want to go into work, well, why not? It's their life, it's their choice. Why shouldn't they choose not to work if they don't want to? And more to the point, the fact that you're having these people drop out of the labour market at the top end, if you like, when they're in their 50s and above, is creating more space for other younger workers who do want to work down the other end of the labour market. And that's good. Because if there's one fuel worker at the top competing for a job that you want or competing for the pay that you would like to get, that makes it easier for you to get paid more. In other words, what you're seeing here is some pressure being applied to the labour market rather than saying, OK, we're all going to compete against each other and therefore give an opportunity for employers to not pay quite as much as they would do. You're actually seeing fewer people around chasing those jobs and some pressure on wages as a result. And in key sectors of the economy, lorry driving, I think, is the one that really sticks out. You're actually seeing quite significant pay increases happening. Elsewhere, as we're seeing today and as we've seen and will see over the next few weeks, throughout the public sector, there's a real problem of labour shortages, but a government that is still refusing to pay people properly. And that's the nub of all of this. It's all very well saying, oh, well, people are economically inactive. I mean, why not? Why shouldn't they do that? Why do we have the idea that everybody is going to be working, if not until they drop, until they reach the official retirement age, which, by the way, is going to increase every few years? Why shouldn't people just drop out? But the other part of it is this slight terror that by having people remove themselves from the labour market, you start to increase the bargaining power of everybody else who's left in that labour market, the people going into work, the people potentially joining trade unions, the people going out on strike. So although it's framed as this awful uh, dilemma for the British economy and how terrible for us all, actually in the context of decades now of low pay, of the share of the economy going to work has been shrunk over the decade of austerity. In the context of all of this, it's really not such a bad thing. And frankly, I think if people want to stop working and they have the means to do that, why not just let them get on with it and let everybody who does want to carry on work pay them properly to do the work that needs to be done. Our second story this week is looking at the uh, scandal of PPE MedPro now, as well as an investigation by the National Crime Agency, now being sued by the government for failing to meet some of the contracts it said it would meet during uh, the pandemic. 
This has been quite the eye-opener, I think, for many people over the last year or so, just how much money was actually wasted by government in the course of the, of the pandemic in 2020. That The need to get hold of rapidly medical equipment, personal protective equipment, was turned into, with surprising, for many people, speed, into an excuse for the VIP lane that provided privileged access for those with political contacts to government procurement contracts. The fact that the usual safeguards applied to government contracting where you're supposed to have, you know, an independent process, competition amongst different suppliers, that sort of thing, was ditched in this rush to get hold of PPE. Now, if you place the most generous interpretation possible on what was happening there, then, and this would be the government's own interpretation, then you would say something like, well, it's a massive pandemic. We had to try and protect people. We're going to go out and find whatever we can to get the PPE that you know, our medical uh, personnel now need. This is now an urgent necessity. Um, and we'll just pay to get hold of that. And of course, some of this money isn't necessarily going to go into the right place, but at least you get the stuff delivered. Now, the problem there, of course, is you go and look at what the stuff being delivered actually was, and you find of the £12 billion spent on PPE, £4 billion of it simply couldn't be used in the NHS because the standards weren't applied properly. And this stuff is now being stacked up, and it's most likely, it turns out, going to have to be burnt, um, potentially to generate electricity. But let's face it, this is hardly a very efficient or even environmentally friendly uh, way of doing things. So there's an extraordinary amount of waste that's crept in here. And of course, you've stepped back one, then you might think, well, why was Britain rushing around to get hold of this PPE? Other countries didn't seem to have the, quite the same problems. And that's exactly the issue. We were underprepared, notoriously, coming to the pandemic because we had a health system and public health systems that had been run down and subject to austerity over the decade preceding. We had not enough slack in the system to cope with something like the pandemic. That's why it was so expensive. That's why we ended up spending so much money trying to compensate for the thing. Now, there's an interesting sort of economics view in this. And it was put by none other than Rupert Harrison, who was George Osborne's um, former economic advisor when George Osborne was chancellor, um, pushing through austerity. Rupert Harrison, one of the architects of austerity in this country. And he says, well, wasn't it good that we did austerity because we created the space, the fiscal space, for the government to be able to go off and spend and borrow loads of money in an emergency like the pandemic, and that kept us all safe, and that's why austerity was good. Now, the fundamental problem with this argument leaving aside the fact that, look, it wasn't um, austerity that created the fiscal space for government to go and spend the colossal amounts, let's call it 310 billion or so, during the pandemic. That wasn't because of austerity. What actually happened is the Bank of England printed the money and handed it to government via a slightly circuitous route, but that's effectively what happened during 2020 into 2021. So it's nothing to do with austerity, a lot to do with the Bank of England printing money, to call it what it is. But even if you sort of accept his argument, it doesn't work. The effect of austerity was to leave not just the NHS, but the entire public sector really underprepared for emergencies like a pandemic, or for that matter, like what's happening every year now that we have a flu season, or a list of any number of events that take place over the course of the year where we have now a public sector that cannot handle uh, these things properly. And that's not just that the NHS is not in a the good, solid, well-funded, well-resourced position they ought to be, and then it could deal with the pandemic. Going further than that, there's a problem of government competence, that if you've spent years whistling away at the number of civil servants you employ, you lose expertise, you lose skills, you lose the people who know how to procure stuff. And then if, of course, you take the really big picture, over many decades, we've had governments successively, neoliberal governments, 
whose view of the world is that government should do as little as possible and just pay the private sector to deliver whatever is needed. Now, we tried that in an emergency in a pandemic, and what happens is the private sector failed to deliver. We don't have the capacity in government for those civil servants to be able to know how to procure properly and to run systems properly and to do so at speed in an emergency. But beyond that, we don't have a government with an idea of industrial strategy. We don't know which suppliers to go to. We don't know how the economy operates because we spent years basically doing neoliberalism and saying the market will always provide. Well, we see what happens if you just say, oh, the market will provide, we'll just dish cash out to all and sundry and see what happens. That's how you end up with so much waste in the middle of a pandemic. It's a long-term problem. Austerity contributed to it, but ultimately there's a failure here of neoliberalism itself. We have governments that aren't uh, capable, a state that isn't capable of delivering the kind of public services, especially in emergency, without this exceptional amount of waste and malpractice and even corruption creeping into it. The final story this week is uh, a small tweak, really, by the Bank of Japan, Japan Central Bank, to how it attempts to manage monetary policy in Japan. This tiny sort of technical fiddle, a small detail in what is called its yield control curve policy, uh, sent stock markets around the world into turmoil, uh, sent Japan's cost of government borrowing shooting up, affected bond prices right the way across the globe. And the tiny technical tweak, by the way, was just this small detail of the Bank of Japan telling markets that whilst it has for a number of years, since about 2016, been insisting that it would try and fix the price of government borrowing in the long term and do so by buying up more government bonds to hold the price down in the long term, it will now allow slightly more leeway on that happening. The reason it's given for doing that is it's saying that actually we need to effectively stop government uh, buying up all the debt that there is and create a bit more uh, market liquidity. In other words, they want to try and promote more people being able to buy and trade and sell Japanese government debt. That's the kind of the formal reason the bank has given for it. But the impact of the thing is to do exactly what every other major central bank has been doing for the last probably 12 to 18 months or so. And that is, in Japan's case, uh, quite a switch from what it's done arguably for decades, which is instead of saying, as we saw during the 2010s, central banks insisting that interest rates should be low, they would do lots of quantitative easing, in other words, kind of money printing. They want this to be how the economy is going to run, or at least they feel that this is what they have to do to keep the economy ticking over. What we've seen in the last 12, 18 months is a concerted effort led really by the US Federal Reserve, the American central bank, to drive up interest rates, typically with the idea of saying, okay, this is how we're now going to restrain inflation. The result is that interest rates around the world have, have been creeping up, except in Japan, where the bank has been insisting they're going to try and keep interest rates as low as possible. And effectively, this uh, situation has become unsustainable for Japan. The value of the yen has depreciated hugely, fallen massively uh, against the value of the dollar. It's become harder and more expensive for Japan to buy its imports. As a result, there's lots and lots of consequences that follow from this. So it's a big switch. And it's a big switch because it marks that final point where effectively every large central bank of every major economy, whether it's the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, now the Bank of Japan, is locked into a process of saying interest rates really need to go up. And we're going to keep doing this. And they'll all say something like this, or at least all of them other than the Bank of Japan, who has their own particular reasons, will say we're doing this because we're trying to fight inflation. Now, as we've gone over before, raising interest rates is not going to have very much impact on the kind of inflation we face. That's coming from 
Russia invading Ukraine. It's coming from the easing of lockdown restrictions and the surge in demand that we've seen across the world. It's coming from environmental shocks of various sorts. None of these things have much to do with interest rates. But the world we're in means that we're getting the interest rate rises. Japan is now part of something like that process as well, what you call tightening of monetary policy. And it doesn't bode well for the following year because it looks to me like all of this tightening of monetary policy, all of these increases in interest rates mean there's less money around. We're more likely to find ourselves in a large and unpleasant recession as a result. With, by the way, inflation still much higher than we've been used to in recent decades. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.